Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were... Very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And we're joined today from Toronto by Matthew Remsky, a journalist and cult researcher who has a specific interest in yoga. He's the author of Practice and All is Coming, Abuse, Cult Dynamics and Healing in Yoga, and is also a co-host of the Conspirituality podcast. Thanks for joining us, Matthew. Thanks so much for having me. I guess, conspirituality, something strange has happened in the, the, the world of the far right, we've noticed over the past year. For people in this research space looking at it, they're used to having to learn a lot of code words and different strange things like, what does it mean when someone wears red suspenders? And suddenly they've had to start learning about things like the Lion Gates portal and what different crystals mean. And I found your podcast be very helpful guide through this world. Uh, can you tell us what is conspirituality as a, a concept and what is the podcast? Well, thanks. It is weird. Uh, and the weirdness is horseshoeing both uh, right and left together. And that's part of the mystery that we try to investigate. Conspirituality is a term that was first defined academically by Charlotte Ward and David Voss in a 2011 paper called The Emergence of Conspirituality. And I think we can share the, the, the paper link with your listeners, and that will be helpful. But the abstract very clearly lays out that uh, what they're trying to track is the convergence of a masculine-oriented, right-wing, politically cynical, and conspiratorial mindset with a feminine-oriented, New Age, spiritually imbued, hopeful kind of uh, utopianism that, on one hand, is predictive of, you know, sort of world disasters, but then, on the other hand, is predictive of a time of great transformation. So, one of the things that we, we do is we study the acceleration of this particular discourse, especially amongst wellness influencers through the COVID era, especially, and certainly hurtling now towards the, the U.S. election. And it brings us to some pretty strange places, you know, people who, studying people who would otherwise be considered or you would assume would have, you know, progressive or feminist or egalitarian values suddenly buying into and becoming proponents of conspiratorial thinking that generally favors and, uh, and, and pushes right wing agendas. So in broad strokes, that's the, that's the, the, the podcast itself and our project. And we try to do a mix of weekly reporting and then deep dive segments into various key figures, but then also pieces of literature and, and various backgrounds as well that tend to make the strange convergence of political views a little bit more understandable. You know, for instance, you know, we, we spent the first couple of ex episodes going into the fact that modern wellness and physical culture and the globalization of yoga and Buddhism have some kind of unlikely or at least hidden political roots in nationalist movements of the 1930s. So, so we try to do some historical work as well. Jumping off that, there is this perception that uh, yoga is incongruous 
congruent with far-right extremism, but that's not necessarily accurate. Could you tell us a bit about Hindutva and how yoga plays into Hindu nationalism's soft power efforts? Yeah, well, that would be the contemporary expression of a story that's now about 100 years old. You know, what we know now of, or what we know now as globalized modern yoga generally focused upon the execution of postures in a group class setting was really born as a an early or proto-nationalist type of physical culture that took its inspiration from the nationalist physical cultures of Europe. What we had was Indian anti-colonialists and uh, proto-nationalists who wanted to emulate the orderliness, the physical discipline, the uh, strength-building cultures uh, that were emerging from European bodybuilding and and Scandinavian gymnastics and all kinds of ideas of physical prowess developing as national characters also developed and came to the forefront of European cultures. And so we have these weird things like, you know, in the 1920s and 30s, a, a huge hero of Indian or a hit in Indian culture was a guy named Eugene Sandow, a German bodybuilder who would tour through India and give demonstrations at YMCA halls and, and so on of physical strength. But his entire sort of zeitgeist was that, you know, Europeans should mold and form and strengthen their bodies, especially as they urbanize, because they're losing their connection to the land and they're losing their connection to physical labor. And really, it's black and brown bodies who are starting to invade uh, uh, Europe more and more and who are starting to take up labor roles who are who are going to become more physically dominant. And, and so physical culture develops in Europe. Europe as a way of protecting the body politic uh, of white people, really. And for some reason, this was very attractive to the anti-colonialists in early nationalist movements in in India. And and what they wanted to do was to come, was to create a a kind of physical culture that they could claim as indigenous. And so they reached back into their own pre-modern history, right back into their medieval art forms and reconstituted the the, the religion of Hatha Yoga as a new form of physical culture. Now, there are long, long arguments about whether or not there was a continuous lineage from the Middle Ages through to, you know, the early 1920s. And, you know, people who, uh, there are some people who believe there is, and there are some people who doubt that that's really possible. But what ends up happening is that we have Indian physical culture em- emerging through the language and the mysticism of yoga as a way of trying to build dignity into the Indian body politic. And that's where the, you know, the the strenuous, muscular, effort-based, calisthenics-type yoga that we now see globalized, that's where that comes from. And so it was always about, it was always politicized. It was always something that was was practiced as a way of, you know, uh, grooming especially young men for responsibility and discipline and leadership skills and 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 also focus and mental control and emotional resilience and so on. So lots of good qualities too. But it, it was a way it was a way for Indian religious notions and spiritual notions to be bound into the somatic formation of the nation state. And so you know when Modi institutes International Yoga Day in I believe 2015 or 14, whenever he's, whenever he's elected, it's the December after that that he goes to the UN and makes this announcement. He's kind of coming full circle. He's saying that yoga as a both spiritual and a wellness practice is India's non-denominational gift to the world, but it's also emblematic, as you say, of India's soft power, and it's very much bound up with national identity and, you know, ideas of of biomorality as well. And that brings along with it uh, some very strange and unexpected political consequences, like the most popular 
uh, yoga teacher in India currently, who's also a political uh, advocate for the Modi government, is a gentleman by the name of Baba Ram Das, who is also a multimillionaire who runs this huge like herbal products empire called Patanjali after the ancient you know sutras. But he proposes that yoga will be able to rid the country of immorality and homosexuality and all kinds of diseases and so on. So there's a very strange biomoral politics and kind of conservatism that is is a feature, uh, you know, not just you know, a bug, but actually a feature of Indian modern yoga. And then a lot, there's a lot of people who import it or who appropriate it uh, into their own cultures around the world. And kind of they don't get the memo around that. They still associate yoga as being, you know, countercultural instead of being something that is heteronormative and is designed to, to strengthen the nuclear family. Matthew, you've made reference to blood and soil and a series of national and uh, racial doctrines in thinking about the relationship between Germany and India in the political dimension in particular, the concept of Aryanness uh, also emerges. Is there a kind of, is that one of the things that ties these two cultures together in the 20th century? Yeah, I imagine so. And I, I should just like stay in my lane and say that I'm not really a historian of the linkages historically between the two countries, but I, you know, I do know just from my time in modern yoga history that Nazis really loved yoga and uh, they were super interested in the esotericism of especially the medieval forms of Hatha yoga and also, you know, conversely Hitler's own notions of blood and soil have been very resonant for uh, a kind of Hindu nationalism that is always seeking to, in this post-colonial sense, restore the sanctity of the Indian motherland, you know, now freed from invaders, not from, you know, not freed of capitalism, of course, but freed of foreign invaders, and now something, now a place that can be almost resurrected if it is purified. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, Modi campaigned and I think uh, got a lot of support in his ascendancy through his promises to finally purify the Ganges River. Like that was, so there's, there's also a, a sense in which that politics is always looking towards the sanctity and the purity of, you know, the water and the soil and, and, uh, and, and the forests because it is from the locations, those locations that the vitality of the native people is going to be restored and, and going to be sustained. Speaking of biomorality, another term that gets thrown around a lot in these circles is that of sovereignty, whether it's referring to you know, sovereign citizenship or the sovereignty of a person's body. What do you understand to be the meaning of sovereignty in these circles and what's your understanding of it? Yeah, it's a great question. Sovereignty has become a buzzword in contemporary alt-health yoga and wellness circles, and it has many convergent meanings, but they all tend to emphasize or point towards a kind of medical libertarianism, where the person or the practitioner believes that their body is inviolable by the state, uh, that it should not be intruded upon because it is perfectly well-functioning as it was made. One's body is miraculous. One's body contains multitudes in terms of its microbiome, and so it should be able to ward off any disease if it's simply left alone. There's a way in which alt-health practitioners use the word sovereignty to describe almost the, the body as though it carried the perfection of their very souls. And so, you know, it shouldn't be impacted by any laws. Its health is, you know, independently generated. And what a lot of, you know, people who, oh, and also there's this, this overlay of kind of, I would say, feminist inflected autonomy or, or agency or emphasis upon consent. So sovereignty also comes to represent, you know, nobody's going to tell me what to do with my body. And, you know, all very compelling arguments and sentiments, but what 
most people aren't aware of is that, at least in a North American context, sovereignty, the term itself, really dates back in modern political parlance to the 1970s, in which it was used to form the basis of the sovereign citizens philosophy and the sovereign citizens movement, which was really a white supremacist movement based upon the notion that no person should have to follow federal or state law if it disagreed with his conscience and, you know, only sheriffs should be in charge. And it was sort of a, a, a political independence or, sla- or really libertarian movement that gained strength and power in the 1970s amongst uh, militia groups and white supremacists. And then that has lingered. It stayed around and taken on these kind of independent healthist meanings, particularly amongst uh, people who believe that uh, vaccines or da- are dangerous or they are, you know, or that, or that public health interventions are actually uh, a plot against uh, personal autonomy. So really it's the, the vaccine movement or the anti-vaccine movement that elevates the notion of sovereignty almost to this equally political, as in you're not going to touch my body, but also uh, spiritual, you're not going to impede upon my freedom or the freedom of my of my soul. All of those meanings come together, along with the, the kind of feminism that I'm, or at least the, the feminist feeling that I'm, I referred to earlier, by which vaccination is named forced penetration, uh, and therefore it's conflated with rape. So sovereignty is, yeah, it's a huge buzzword. It's a key word it's 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 used by many many different people in the same way i suppose that qanon terminology is used by many people with the end result pushing everybody in a particular direction which is towards you know right wing uh, or libertarianism or this sense that I, I'm only ever going to take care of myself because I, I can only be assured of my own moral purity, which is a reflection actually of my bodily purity as well. You're listening to Yeah Na Passaran on 3CR 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Matthew Remsky about conspirituality. Is there a notion of collective sovereignty also present in these documents? Doctrines and how do you think that relates to uh, Q and I guess US sovereignty and the figure of someone like Trump? Well, certainly there are circle. It seems like there are circles within circles that while the uh, wellness person or the yoga person might be interested in or might be primarily focused upon bodily sovereignty. Uh, as a reflection of moral or spiritual purity, there's going to be a sort of an, an outer circle of that that suggests that the, the district or the neighborhood uh, one is in should also be secured against outside influence. And then that will extend out to an attitude around uh, immigration or who's bringing what into the homeland. But in terms of like collective sovereignty, I am not seeing amongst conspirituality movements or certainly amongst QAnon any really solid sense that there's a shared vision of the future or politics or land base or project. It's really, uh, it's nihilistic in the sense and, and really I would say adolescent in the sense that it seems to always be rejecting forms of authority perceived as being oppressive, but without really suggesting anything in its place. So, yeah, I, I, I haven't seen, I mean, I've seen, I've seen the, what would you say, almost like a phantasm of collective sovereignty as a kind of marketing device by alt health influencers who set up quote unquote communities online and then kind of I, I would say fool people into believing that if you join their subscription programs or their mentorship programs or something like that, that you're moving to some utopia. But that's, I believe that's more, you know, social media marketing than it is, you know, community building. We've seen in the past few weeks, uh, social media platforms really crack down on conspiracy material. Yeah. Uh, do you think that will have a material impact on this conspirituality nexus? Like how much of the this was 
algorithmically driven where, you know, you're getting the big hits from the conspiracy content. And do you think that'll stay the case now that the algorithm has turned? I, you know, uh, according to the, you know, one of the people that I watch most closely on this is Imran Ahmed and his Center for uh, Combating Digital Hate in the UK. And their, their organization and research says this is absolutely the right direction to go. It's too little too late, unfortunately, but deplatforming works. And they point out that when David Icke loses his YouTube channel, uh, he goes from a quarter of a million uh, followers on YouTube to slowly trying to crawl back up to 60,000 followers, you know, months later on BitChute or something like that. So there is a benefit to the marginalization of conspirituality and conspiracist extremism for sure. The security analysts here in Canada that I've spoken to for a feature that I'm writing on the infiltration of QAnon into Canada are concerned that the further isolation and marginalization of uh, these populations into tighter and tighter filter bubbles will inc- may increase the possibility for lone wolf attacks because there's even less contact with the outside world. But on the other hand, it's like the ease with which QAnon exploded into mainstream social media through wellness influencers. And a really good example here was how Christiane Northrup, uh, the alt health uh, OBGYN uh, who lives in Maine, uh, was the main vector for the viral hit pandemic, which was just lurking around in QAnon groups before she shared it. That gateway of Facebook being able to and Twitter being able to broadcast these really, really nihilistic uh, uh, brainworms to the normies, to to boomers, to to your aunt and uncle, uh, that's really reduced, and I think that's that's going to be that's going to have a positive effect. I but however, the themes of QAnon will, I believe, will be infinitely malleable, and they will carry the same emotional impact. The keywords will change, and in the broader sphere of conspirituality, where QAnon has thrived in in the wellness world, there's going to be a lot of ways for QAnon to continue uh, without being explicitly identified as such. I guess just in conclusion, this is a, a we're talking about a wellness industry, and yet it seems to conceal within it a certain germ of um, ill health. That's a contradiction. How do you think that it can best be addressed? And uh, apart from, I guess, exposing it through your podcast, are there other critical elements that are missing that have allowed for this kind of conspiracist thinking to flourish? Well, you know, uh, as the Canadian member of our team, I'm always one to point out that it's not surprising to me that conspirituality in its you know most virulent forms is really an american export and i think that is the case because it, there's this all kinds of elements of a perfect storm but when it comes to wellness and and alternative health there's already a messianic quality to the work that the influencers in this spe- in this sector do and it has to be messianic because they're not being taken care of otherwise right so in a country in which you know there's 40 million people without health care and everybody else except the top tiny percentage of people has is paying big deductibles on hospital visits or they're going bankrupt on a regular basis or somebody in the family is having some kind of you know medical financial crisis the the notion that you should be able to be healthy on your own and you should have the freedom to basically create your own medical rules is really it really makes sense in relation to a predatory medical model and insurance driven industry and so when I, I i used to joke that whenever i went to yoga conferences internationally i could always tell who the american teachers were not just by accent but because they used to sound like evangelical preachers because they have to do yoga in order to create and maintain their health. There's, they have no choice. There is nothing else. It's not like the state is going to step in and take care of anyone. So there's this kind of like, uh, social neglect that has 
sharpened the edge of the alt-health sword into this weapon that people use really against themselves to work harder, to blame themselves when they get sick, to blame others when they get sick, to show no mercy when when uh, sickness becomes social. Matthew, we'll have to leave it there for the radio show, but we will ask you a few more questions on the podcast version of the show, which people can find at 3cr.org.au slash yeahnapasaran or on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, just before we go, where can people find you online? Well, uh, conspirituality.net is the podcast and uh, my personal site where uh, most of my articles are uh, is matthewremsky.com. I also have bylines at uh, genbymedium.com and also at the walrus uh, a Canadian magazine, so that's the walrus.ca. And you can also find Conspirituality on Patreon, where people can get bonus episodes and things. All right. Thank you very much. Excellent. Right. <laughs> no problems. Well, we'll leave it there. We'll catch you next week. Global Intifada is up next. See you later. Something I've noticed with women is that often I see people saying, oh, I got into this after I became a mother. And I think that might partly be because that process can be quite deep disempowering uh, is that something that you see at all well certainly uh, i mean the the wellness industry is mainly a women's market i mean the yoga global yoga industry itself is 80 percent women and so uh, huge sectors of the industry are focused around life cycle changes and issues and and childbirth is a central one of them and in fact you know it's like Pre and postnatal yoga uh, are basically created uh, in the 1980s and 90s as a way of retaining the mainly female clientele of that that yoga studios uh, have have attracted uh, through this major life change. So I would say that motherhood in the wellness space, yeah, confers a kind of well, it's given a kind of ritual and, you know, rite of passage, but also spiritualizing importance that brings with it a sense of maternal protectiveness, but also a, a kind of idealization of, uh, perfect home building that is based upon being as pure as one can with relation to you know food and and one's household objects and also you know what's in the garden uh so these are yeah these are incredibly powerful forces that don't typically have much to do with you know the the more intersectional feminism that that I think many of your listeners are going to be familiar with, which is really about building uh, coalitions of justice amongst you know broad demographics. So so yeah, there's a there's a way in which there's a way in which uh, I, 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 in which birth and homemaking is at the heart of the wellness and yoga project, and in some ways it gives people a sense of rest and and restoration and empowerment in the face of this incredible life change but at the same time it it almost depoliticizes you know what would otherwise be a pursuit of equity and justice in in one's community you were talking earlier about sovereign citizens and how that language has been sort of uh, adopted by the conspirituality movement in australia we've seen this really uh this alliance form between sovereign citizens and anti-vaxxers and anti-5G people where uh, the sovereign existing sovereign citizen movement here has sort of provided a legal framework or, you know, a supposed legal framework by which these people think that they can get out of uh, having 5G towers in their communities or they can get out of whatever mandatory vaccination program Bill Gates is going to bring in right? Uh, by send, you know, sending the right amount of letters or using the right language. Is that something that you're seeing in other places? I, I have seen references to it in, in uh, American social media feeds in the wellness space where people are starting to organize around, okay, well, you know, who's your you know who's your local sheriff and how, what are we going to how are we going to 
pressure our town council or uh, how are we going to bring a lawsuit against the public health department of our local city? Uh, that, yes, that's starting, that's starting to happen. I haven't seen it in Canada so much, but, uh, certainly it's happening in the, certainly it's happening in the States. And as it happens, it's coinciding, it's coinciding with an escalate, es- escalation of, frankly, violent rhetoric, uh, from, you know, the unlikeliest of places. I referenced Christiane Northrup for the radio portion of the show, but just uh, a week or two ago, she was talking about how under, I think, Article 6 of the Constitution, apparently it says or it suggests that sheriffs are not beholden to the, the state governor or to, I'm not quite sure what the what the article says, but she basically invokes an, a legal argument that has been used by militia movements and sovereign citizen movements movements over the last 40 years to suggest that when a federal gun law like the Brady Bill comes in, that uh, they can petition, people can petition their sheriffs to not enforce it, and, and that should work. And of course, the driver behind a comment like that, well, I don't know about the motivation, but what that comment pushes people towards is, and, and coming from a, you know, 70 plus year old OBGYN, who's a hero of, you know, alternative women's health is it it pushes this huge population towards the logic of the same type of militia movements that just got foiled in kidnapping and and planning to execute the governor of Michigan. So it's it's a very very and I don't think somebody like Christiane Northrup is 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 entirely aware of the the implications of using militia type language uh to to subtly imply that the sheriffs should take over the town i don't i don't think she's aware of what what that actually leads to uh but there's a lot of her listeners who will be aware of it and and who will get a kind of you know spiritualized and you know goddess oriented permission from her to to keep thinking that way yeah, the rhetoric is uh, really interesting uh, you've i've on the podcast, you've noted people like Sasha Stone uh, talking in quite violent terms. Uh, could you tell us a bit about who he is and what concerns you about what he's saying? Well, I, I can't say that I know a lot about him, except that uh, I think he is an ex-rock star, uh, and he has he was I think he was he grew up in 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 Africa, uh, came through South Africa. He's wound up in Bali now, in Ubud, and he runs a kind of eco-retreat there based upon uh, some very um, fancy-looking bamboo palaces, and he hosts a natural rights health festival, I believe it's called, every year, and of course it's, you know, there's a lot of consternation uh, on his part over the fact that he can't do that this year because of uh, COVID restrictions, but he has become a leading. He also has uh, an organization called Humanitad, which also is a, a natural rights, anti-vax, uh, natural law organization. I'm not quite sure if that's still active, but uh, there's also something called the International Tribunal of something. Uh, anyway, he's very, very active in medical libertarianism and and a kind of spiritualized medical libertarianism for many, many years. But he's come to the forefront of uh, the conspirituality landscape really during lockdown because he has a very strong digital footprint and he hosts all of these online conferences and he gets a lot of airplay and a lot of uh, a lot of views by interviewing all of the top you know conspirituality figures uh, you know in, including people like Northrop uh, but then other uh, you know many other many other alternative health doctors as well and it's kind of extraordinary how he has made it part of his shtick really to break into the middle of an interview and say well I'll come out and say the thing that you're too polite to say which is that we really need uh, a violent overthrow of public officials and we really need to eviscerate the leviathan of the state and some of it sounds 
uh, absurd, but it's most definitely violent and inciting violence. And yeah, so one of the things we've done on the podcast is, is to try to track that. And then to, there's, we've posted an open letter to, to say, you know, can he really clarify what he means about, about the necessity to eviscerate public officials? And, you know, who does he expect to do that? And, and then we're also asking, his guests that he invites to these online summits. How do you feel about this language? Because there's this weird moment where he's talking about how the global cabal is, he goes into full QAnon language at one point uh, as he's interviewing Christiane Northrup, and he's talking about how a kind of everyday household Luciferianism uh, has, has taken over and there have been many millions of souls butchered in the basements of the state and so on. And she's just nodding and smiling and I mean, I don't know what else. Maybe she's being polite as well, but we're also trying to reach out to, you know, the people who are trying to take advantage of his platform because this whole sort of world works on referral networks and people trading influence and so on. Uh, but we're trying to get, you know, people like Northrop to say, do you really endorse this language or are you, you know, would you, would you like to denounce it? So, yeah. It's it's been an extraordinary thing to to watch. Uh, J.P. Sears is another one who you know at least flirts with not a violent rhetoric himself, but is you know hosts a a, a guy who's an ex Navy SEAL. I think he's an MMA fighter. I can't remember his name. Tim Kennedy maybe, and he is. He was one of the federal agents in unmarked vans who was assigned to go to Portland to drag people off the streets into 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 some legal limbo. And there was a point at which uh, I think J.P. Sears shared Tim's kind of hey, here we go, we've packed up the van and, you know, you should know that if you're part of Antifa, we're going to come and get you kind of thing. So there are these really weird escalating links between wellness influencers who believe that the, the public health advice to wear masks is somehow leading towards, I don't know, some kind of a holocaust that they have to take up arms against. Well, as long as you're blackbagging people in Portland with like love and light in your heart, I suppose that's I, all right. I suppose it is. But I, well, I don't think Tim is that, is that kind of guy, but, but I think that JP really likes him because he's not that kind of guy. Could you and explain that's the thing, J- And that's the thing. I, so let me just add. And that's the thing is that uh, I think we've got a lot of men in the wellness space who, uh, don't identify as being who who would like to present themselves as as being domesticated and spiritual but but who are probably very very interested uh, almost in in an erotic sense in the violence that they can't imagine themselves performing remember watching quite recently another uh, person who runs retreats in bali talking at great length about how they were going to be pulling people out of their houses and shooting them it uh, must be something in the Nazi Goring. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I, thi- I I think that I came up on the podcast kind of on the spur of the moment with with an idea that uh, I'm calling the the David Avocado Wolf pro- problem, which is that I don't know if anybody knows. I don't know if you guys know David Wolf, but he's no. That's this is one of my other questions. Right. Who okay. David yeah. Avocado? Okay. So he so he is he's a former New Yorker. I think he's a dual citizen now in Canada. He's going back and forth between the border now, uh, agitating at, at anti-lockdown protests. Uh, but he made his splash as a raw food, raw chocolate, uh, you know, superfoods, goji berry, you know, entrepreneur. And I think he's made a lot of money at that over the years. Uh, he's also, you know, communicated a lot of bizarre views that people have kind of snickered at or, you know, they've kind of tolerated as he's the smoothie clown or something like that and and people like the raw chocolate and the smoothies so they put up with the fact that he flirts with flat earth theory or whatever but i think he's a really good example of somebody who has been really flying by the seat of his charismatic pants for a long time making extreme claims about his you know the ability of his shakes to cure cancer that there comes a point at which the promises that are made in 
these pseudoscience spaces, they are messianic, but they failed. And they're also boring. Like, like, I don't know how long a person can go on talking about green foods saving the world without the world being saved before you have to move on to something else or you have to, or you have to create another disaster and sort of sharpen your focus to something that feels a little bit more real. And I think that for a lot of charismatic wellness influencers who have either bored themselves or you know, exhausted their markets in, pl- in in promising the moon, they really jump at the notion that now there's something to really fight about, right? Now there's something that's really happening. Now, oh, everybody has health on their minds and the immune system on their minds. And now we can talk about on a, on a, on a mass scale with big megaphones, our beliefs that germ theory isn't real because, of course, everybody's wearing a mask and sanitizing their hands, so they must be deluded by their belief in germ theory, whereas we've always known uh, that germ theory is false. And so there's this opportunity, a kind of disaster spirituality opportunity for people who have really been spinning their wheels, trying to sell the next course, trying to sell the next drink, trying to sell the next cleanse. And finally, there's an almost apocalyptic moment in which their beliefs about health can be can really mean something. And so and so that's the David Wolf problem. There's only so many years that you can sell shakes for before you really need a disaster that your prior training can convince your followers that you can cure. And so, yeah, I mean, I also don't think that there's a big leap between the messianic wellness promises of alt health or spiritual enlightenment and the kind of inflated rhetoric that we get from Sasha Stone because everything is grandiose, right? He didn't build bamboo retreat houses or resort houses. He built bio-harmonious and bio-vibrational bamboo mandala centers, right? That are, that, and that the copy, you know, if you go to his retreat center and you rent out this thing, you are staying in a nice bamboo house, but he's telling you that it's going to raise your vibrations and give you access to your higher faculties, right? And so everything in this whole industry is an oversell. Everything is promising the moon. And so, you know, why shouldn't people keep bullshitting and pushing the edge uh, just to keep their followers interested. That does make me think of uh, Q because uh, in this world everything's laden with meaning. It's up to the the individual consumer to kind of interpret it and make sense of it and that seems to be what's happening with uh, in the world of Q as well. There's all these clues and it's up to the you know, enlightened to be able to absorb and interpret them. Yeah, and 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 the uh, the the DIY aspect of it, the the sort of open field anybody can anybody can do their research. It's it's almost purpose made for the wellness industry where we have somebody like Sayer G who has run Green Med Info in the United States for I think 11 years, I think he started in 2009, as as precisely that, as a DIY research site for alternative health. But the problem is that he's curating the 50,000 journal articles that are available or searchable on his site. And he presents it as though, oh, here's a site where you can look up an alternative health solution that's been verified or, or prove, proven because, you know, I've got, I've, I've put a medical paper there. Well, he cherry picked the papers, not because he's a research scientist, not because he's an epidemiologist who, who, who knows how to read studies about coronaviruses, but because he has a particular vision of what should heal human beings. And he's gotten that vision somehow along the way, along with his BA in philosophy from Rutgers University. Like there's just no, he doesn't, he doesn't have the, he doesn't have, he, he has a vibrant imagination. He has obviously a passion for wanting people to be self-sufficient and to discover how, 
you know, miraculously healing their bodies can be or, or whatever. And all of these are very nice and appealing things, but he doesn't have, he doesn't have a kind of epistemology or, or a method for figuring out what research is valid and, and what needs to be rechecked and, and where a meta study is and so on. So it's, it's really, but the thing that makes that purpose built for, uh, at least the methodology of QAnon is that it turns the consumer not just into somebody who's making choices, but somebody who's becoming an expert in themselves, somebody who's becoming an expert in their condition. And then the, the conundrum is, is that sometimes that's necessary. So, for instance, in modern psychiatrics, it's really people who have suffered from polypharmacy and misdiagnosis or overdiagnosis or just too much medication. Uh, they have to, they do have to find out on their own generally because they're not going to get any help from psychiatry how to taper off medicines and so on. So, there are places in which the DIY, do your own research, become your own expert is actually crucial for people's survival. But for the, for the most part, it's, it's not going to be helpful, helpful for public health when the curation of a site like GreenMedInfo is, is trying to push everybody towards, uh, an anti-vax position. Uh, speaking of QAnon, on the show we've talked to people about, obviously, American QAnon, but we've also talked about Aussie QAnon and British QAnon. What's Canadian QAnon like? Yeah, so I'm I'm finishing up a feature on precisely this for the Walrus, and I I'm hoping that it will be out before the election. The you know, of course, the news cycle changes so fast, so it's hard to keep it. As it goes through fact checking, it's hard to keep it uh, current at the same time. But I would say that so far, it's not clear that QAnon will land with as much virulence or real world impact in Canada as it has in the States. Uh, and just a couple of measurements for that would be that there has only been one marginally or possibly related uh, to QAnon, uh, violent incident, uh, involving a guy who did post QAnon material to his, uh, social media feeds the day before he launched an attack upon the grounds of Rideau Hall in Ottawa, which is the residence of the Prime Minister and the, and the Lieutenant General and the Governor General. But he, the, it seems from the, reports that he was much more motivated by financial stress than anything else. And analysts and the RCMP and CSIS are very, very, they're very hesitant to connect that particular attack with QAnon, whereas in the States there have been, you know, more than a dozen violence incidents so far, and they're going to continue to escalate. Uh, so that's one measurement. Another measurement would be that basically all Canadian politicians, even the farthest right, most conspiracy-soaked amongst them are avoiding QAnon like the plague, whereas in the States we have over 80 people running for Congress in this current cycle who have pledged some sort of allegiance or affinity for QAnon. But, you know, here in Canada we've got, like, Maxime Bernier of the People's Party of Canada who simply, I think, retweeted uh, a a QAnon related tweet and then immediately retracted it. Uh, there was a, cons there was a conservative MP who did the same thing, immediately retracted it and, uh, issued an apology. And then there was a, there was a guy who was running for the Saskatchewan party. So this is at the provincial level who I think liked two QAnon tweets and was called out by a media watchdog here from uh, the the left of center political spectrum. And, and he was booted out of the Saskatchewan party by his conservative leader like the next day. And so there's something about, I don't know, Canadian temperament that finds QAnon to be like utterly toxic. However, amongst the wellness influencers, not so toxic. Uh, and this is where, and this is where, this is where we see people like Danielle Laporte, who's a very prominent uh, Vancouver-based 
I don't know what we'd call her like, I mean, self-help guru. I think she might be a trained psychologist. I don't know. But, uh, she, she, she got very close to QAnon rhetoric during the Save the Children phase. She also used some, on her Instagram account, she quoted I think she said that, I think she said that child trafficking was the real pandemic or something like that, edged very, very close to QAnon language and has since somewhat walked this back, but not before, of course, you know, millions of engagements on social media. There have been B-level yoga teachers uh, across Canada that I've looked at who have uh, promoted QAnon material. But I think that what is most impressive about QAnon in... Oh, and then also very important to mention that the Quebec flavor of QAnon, especially through an outlet called Radio Quebec, I noticed the Q in there, uh, which has since been, which has since been shut down, uh, via YouTube was actually a vector for QAnon content to the entire French speaking world, including France, Belgium, and North Africa, which is so weird. So that's been, that's been strange to look at. But I think what's most remarkable so far about, uh, QAnon's influence is a parallel movement in Canada that's called the line where if you look at their logo, it kind of looks like a Q. It's an O with a red slash through it. You just tilt it, tilt a little bit and you, you, you have almost a Q, but you have a very close overlap of QAnon themes, but then with especially Canadian sovereignty and anti-lockdown and anti-mask and medical libertarianism that joins together many, many different groups, uh, which is also fascinating. I mean, QAnon does that generally is that, is that it, it, it's such a big tent conspiracy theory that when we get to Toronto, we have, you know, people from Mennonite sects marching alongside, you know, Quebec separatists and people who march with, with Albertan uh, separatists and, and uh, white supremacists. So it's, it's a really amazing kind of bonding force that this mythology and language has given to I would say I would call the line a kind of Q-inspired Canadian movement. It's bringing people together. It, it is. It is bringing. It is bringing people together. And you know, it's 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 sometimes. I think I one of the best interviews that I did for this for this article was with a clinical psychologist in Montreal named Haida Hassan, and she said, you know, I really hope that. I really hope that we learn how to downplay the freak show element of these movements and listen very clearly to the resistance that they clumsily offer to globalization, to surveillance capitalism, to the fact that neoliberal societies pretend that they're free, but actually they're extraordinarily controlled. And it was really enlightening to hear her say this, to say both we have to be really uh, vigilant about how people can be radicalized by conspiracy theories, especially when they're so uh, morbid and they're so emotionally vitiating. But at the same time, we have to understand why it is appealing to people to feel as though they have to resist what feels like a pervasive neoliberal technological impenetrable state that do they really have the credibility to tell us what to do with their body with our bodies are we really going to trust public health when it has failed us so often and are we are we really thinking that our modern nation states have have our best interests in mind so so yeah i mean it brings people together for understandable reasons but also for but also with rhetoric that is can be very violent and misdirecting and and, uh, and confusing and, and uh, traumatizing. Well, that seems like a really good place to leave it, but I do have one last question that uh, is just a little bit, little bit of a snarky one. Uh, you mentioned J.P. Sears before. Uh, can you tell me what the hell is the deal with that guy? <laughs> well, I, 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 I mean... I, I, I saw him a few years right. ago where he was doing these parody videos yeah, yeah. where he was mock, mocking wellness grifters. 
Yeah, and but yet, he's but that's what he is himself. I mean, he he and he said as he said as much that that his self-conscious ironic take upon wellness grifting is is reflective not only of his own experience but also became a, a calling card for his own life coaching and spiritual coaching and you know his own supplement stuff and whatever like you know he so he's 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 making fun of the world that he's in but of course he's transcended that he's moved beyond that into full-on alt-health libertarianism so his comedy has really begun to functionally punch down uh and as that has happened his audience has grown right and that's come along with it uh, you know a whole bunch of self-constructed and perpetuated drama about whether or not he's going to get deplatformed or censored or whatever so yeah i think he's really he's an interesting figure because because he was always making fun of progressives while also in being invested in seemingly progressive alternative health projects but but yeah now the true colors are out really and he's he's an individualist and uh he can't believe that health is something that's actually shared instead of something that is owned by you know the triumphant self I did have one more question, but it was to do with the, the notion that one of the reasons that sovereignty has emerged as a popular theme has to do with its, uh, within this culture, has to do with its origins in the United States and the fact that, you know, individuals and uh, are forced or are unable to call upon the state or public health in order to preserve their well-being. And yet at the same time, so that makes sense in terms of the, the kinds of appeals that are being made to the market for these sorts of ideas. And yet at the same time, you have this image of the, the more, I guess, successful figures within the wellness industry. They uh, emanate a sense of affluence. And I'm wondering, I'm thinking about, well, on the one hand, you've got these figures who are, you know, healthy and, and uh, full of uh, wellness also affluent, to whom do they appeal? Because on the one hand, you've got a, a kind of, I guess, a, a desperate constituency that's looking for solutions to their health problems, which generally denotes a, a relative poverty. At the same time, there are more affluent figures, which also appeal to seemingly a more affluent market. I mean, who can afford? I mean, it might make sense in terms of, you know, obtaining a proper medical care, maybe enormously expensive, so therefore the, the kinds of things that are being sold, the magic pills and so on, are relatively cheap. But at the same time, it depends upon a certain level of affluence. So I'm wondering what's the, I guess, the class dimension, what's the uh, socioeconomic dimension of both the industry itself and its market? You know, it's such a wonderful question, and I know you wanted to wrap up, but but I'm going to give a fairly lengthy answer. I hope that yeah, that's okay. All right, okay, so... so I think it's crucial to understand that the modern yoga and wellness industries explode in tandem with and because of uh, the, the, the explosion in deregulation and globalization that we see happening through the 80s, late 80s and early 90s. The most, the, the most concrete example that I can give for the relationship between the deregulation of labor markets, the crushing of, or the, or the degradation of, of unions and union organizer, union organizing, uh, the offshoring of labor and the wellness, the growth of wellness spaces is simply by showing that the urban yoga studio is made possible through the process of gentrification. So there's a, there's a, there's an opening couple of pages in No Logo by Naomi Klein where she talks about uh, somewhere in the early 90s or the mid 90s or something like that, moving into a newly renovated loft building in the gar in the former garment district here in Toronto on Spadina Avenue around Queen Street. Uh, now these buildings were huge turn of the century uh, red brick 
buildings with hardwood floors. I, maybe I don't know which if you have this style of of urban manufacturing architecture in in uh, your cities in Australia, but they're all over North America. Back in the from the era in which cities were manufacturing centers, and when free trade agreements sent all of the garment industry packing from that part of the city in Toronto to Vietnam and to Bangladesh, suddenly uh, these huge spaces opened up for the leading edge of gentrification. And in that first wave, you had people opening art studios, you know, with these big high ceilinged floors and, and hardwood floors and big windows and stuff like that. Uh, and you had them opening dance studios and you had, had them opening yoga studios. And she, so Klein writes about moving into an apartment in one of these buildings where she was living right next to uh, the yoga studio. And that yoga studio was called Downward Dog, which is still in business and it was owned by a friend of mine named Diane Bruni. They were only there a couple of years because, as I said, it was the leading edge of gentrification. And as soon as the property values went up, uh, they uh, they had to go out farther onto that edge. Uh, and of course, a dot-com company moved into that same space. Now, so, so what's happening is that we have this depoliticization of youth culture through the pervasion of neoliberalism and its attitudes and kind of the perfection of consumer culture. And that's happening at the same time that labor laws are relaxing, the gig economy is is moving in, and then all of these empty spaces where people used to actually make things and sell them to each other in cities are now empty. And what are they going to produce now? Well, uh, if people open yoga studios in those spaces, those yoga studios will now produce not clothes, not food, not anything really useful for society, uh, but they will produce something that we could call the aspirational self. You, you, you used to go into these spaces to make things, but now you go into these spaces to sort of reimagine who you could be. And it's just weird. And, and every single urban yoga studio that I know of in every major North American city has this kind of origin story, and it continues right through to the present day. Of course, they're now being shut down by the pandemic, but that might be a coup de grace, really, because because many of them were running to the edge of their profitability uh, as gentrification has continued to make overhead prices soar. But at the same time that yoga and wellness spaces begin to reshape the fabric of cities, which of course also means that black and brown people are moving out or they can't afford to be there anymore, or they can only be in the city as, you know, workers in the service economy. Then the other thing that's happening is that the gig economy begins to emerge as a kind of byproduct of wellness where you know the thing that you're going to do if you get into yoga is you're going to become a yoga teacher which you know is not a profession it's a contract job that you have to be you know no pun intended really flexible to uh, take on and to make work for you and so you know you ask what are the politics that come out of or that are pervasive within the yoga and wellness spaces, you can't really separate any of that out from the growing sort of cloud of neoliberalism and gentrification that remakes uh, all of North America's urban centers and Europe's too, I think, over about 20 years from the early 90s onwards. You know, so it's no wonder that this is a culture that is historically uneducated and politically disconnected, that's not organizing. It's being told that it has everything that it needs because it has yoga and green smoothies, and it's being given just enough money to afford its apartments and whatever. But it's also being run ragged uh, and not being given any time to to really organize. So, yeah, it's it's like yoga and wellness both economically but also thematically end up presenting themselves as though they 
exist in a post-class world. It's just really weird to realize all of this. I'm 48 years old and I grew up in a union household where my parents sat around the dinner table and talked about, you know, what their union was up to and how, what the next strike action would be. And all of that just vanished when I got into the yoga world. It just, it just, I'm only now realizing that this huge moral structure in my life, which said, oh, actually, there are things that are worth organizing over and fighting for was just it was just ripped out of me somehow by uh, a culture that was telling me that, you know, if I if I meditated, everything would be okay. Well, on that note, I could talk about this stuff for hours, yeah, I think yeah. but we better let you go. Uh, thanks very much for joining us, Matthew. You're so welcome. It's a real pleasure to talk to you both. It was great questions. Melbourne, I found a footnote bombs fly on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favorite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. Mm. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving 
everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. The Rainbow Door is a free, culturally safe, specialist helpline for all LGBTIQA plus Victorians. The helpline provides information, support and referral from experienced peer workers on issues including mental health, family violence, relationships, suicide prevention and sexual assault. For information, support and referral, call the Rainbow Door on 1-800-729-367. That's 1-800-729-367, 10am to 6pm every day. Switchboard is a 3CR supporter.